We're going to be, um, in the next few weeks, embarking on a, a, a new book of the Bible, a new section of Scripture. But um, tonight I'd like to wrap up uh, what we began last year and uh, up until right up until Christmas time as we went through the journey to the promised land, beginning with Abraham, going through Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and um, walking with the Israelites through the book of Exodus and, and Numbers and Deuteronomy and even Leviticus. And so um, as we did that, I, I hope that there's some things we've picked up. And uh, tonight we want to uh, draw from a section in the New Testament from 1 Corinthians that speaks about those things. Because maybe you ask yourself, well, it's good that we learn that history, but what does that have to do with me? Of course, if you read the Bible, you know that every single scripture has something to do with you. If you can hear the Holy Spirit and, and read it with that, that light. But you might also say, well, we're new covenant people, right? We're, we're, we're on this side of the cross. We are born again. We're washed by the blood of Jesus. We are filled with his spirit. So, I mean, how much in common do I have with those Old Testament Israelites wandering around the wilderness, walking with Moses, coming out of Egypt. And the truth is, according to Scripture, you have a lot in common with them. Yes, you are in a new and better covenant. Yes, most of us here are Gentiles that were brought into the family of God. But uh, there's a reason that that journey to the promised land is one of the most quoted, in fact it is, the most quoted event in the New Testament. It's brought up constantly in the New Testament. And, and it's brought up as an example for us. And so in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul lays the stage and, and tells us just what we just said, that all of these things that happened to them should serve as an example for us. Now remember, he's talking to born-again, New Testament, New Covenant believers. He's talking to Christians. So he's talking to them on this side of the cross as if that stuff that happened thousands of years before is directly relevant to them. If it was relevant to them, it's still relevant to us. Right here in 2017. I believe that everything we read, everything we see should be viewed through the light of the cross of Jesus Christ. I think that is our reference point. So when we read the Old Testament, we see it through those eyes. Everything is viewed through Christ. He is the substance of all those forms and shadows. He is, he is the completion. He is the fulfillment of all these things. So when we look back, we see him in places that nobody knew he was there. And yet, we do have to look back. And there are some things that God wants to show us. And so, I want to read this to you in 1 Corinthians 10. But in order to do that, I think it'd be fair to give you a little bit of background on what the Apostle Paul has been writing about up to this point. Because in 1 Corinthians 9, he's talking about athletics. He's talking about running a race. He's talked about, in 1 Corinthians 9, he spent most of his time talking about how he chooses to live his life based on the fact that his mission is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm not alive for me, I'm alive for him. So people would ask him, well, Paul, you're a Jew, right? And he's like, well, yeah, but I'm also a believer in Jesus Christ. So I'm sure the Apostle Paul would have described it as something like a fulfilled Jew. He still considered himself a Hebrew, a, a Jewish person, but he found his fulfillment. He was a Messianic Jew. He found his fulfillment in Jesus. And so uh, he said, all that I gained back there in my old life before Christ, I counted as loss compared to knowing him. Said, I was, if, if you were looking for a good Jew, that was me. If you were looking for somebody from a good family, with a good education, with a reason to brag, it was me. But he said, all of that I count as dung compared to what I have in him. So I boast in the Lord. But he, he in 1 Corinthians 9, somebody might ask him, so if you're a good Jew, Paul, do you eat kosher, right? Like, do you eat bacon, Paul? Do you eat lobster? Because a good Jew wouldn't, right? Until Peter was on the roof of his house at one point and, and God gave him a vision from heaven and showed him a bunch of things he wasn't allowed to eat and said, kill and eat these things. And of course, the point there wasn't the food, it was the people. 
because Peter also was not allowed to go into a Gentile's house, somebody who was not Jewish. He couldn't go into their house, and God was opening up the gospel, opening up the family to all nations. And so it was important that Peter see that through Christ, that the doors have been opened wide. Now, I don't know what you believe. I know a lot of good Christians that I respect and admire, and they eat kosher. That's cool. They eat it because it's healthier. Um, I think we'd all be healthier without bacon. I'm sure that's true. Um, I, I don't eat kosher. I, I, don't, um, I don't mind if my meat and my cheese touches. Um, I'm not, uh, so I'll eat pizza, all these things, right? Um, nevertheless, Paul has asked this question several times through his ministry. And what he paints the picture for us in 1 Corinthians 9 is he says, there's a whole bunch of stuff I could do, but I won't do because my goal is to reach people with the gospel. So he says, when I'm with Jewish people, I'll eat like a Jewish person. When I'm with Gentiles, I'll eat like them. He said, although I won't do anything. He says, when I'm with Jews, I'll act like a Jew. When I'm with Gentiles, I'll act like a Gentile, although I won't break the law of Christ. Like I won't step into sin. I won't do anything that my conscience tells me I should not be doing. He says, everything I do, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. Now, that phrase just blows me away. The thought that everything I do has a reason behind it. Everything I do has a reason. Every, every decision I make, there's a purpose behind it. And that purpose is to get the gospel to more people. I don't know how you guys feel, but when I look at, and I hold my life to that standard, I, I go, I, I've got a ways to go. Because there are some, there's a lot of things in my life I do for the sake of the gospel, but I'm not at that point yet where I can say everything I do, I do for the gospel. I'd I want to get to that point. That is a goal for me. That's a, that's a journey for me. He says the reason is, is because there's a race and I'm running to win. And he uses the comparison, he uses it a few times in his ministry, he uses a comparison of an athlete, somebody who's training for the Olympics. He talks about the games. Well, to, to the readers at the time in Corinth, in Greece, the games were the original Olympic games. And so he's saying, when someone's training for the games, everything they do is about that race. What they eat, when they go to sleep, what they do in their spare time. I mean, you've seen, if you watch the Olympics, you see guys like Usain Bolt. That guy is not just eating, you know, 10 cheeseburgers before the race. He's not staying up all night. I mean, when he retires, he's going to get to take it easier. But while he's still an athlete competing to be the best in the world, everything he does is about that race. And Paul says, there are a lot of things I can do and I'm allowed to do but it's not about what I'm allowed to do. It's about what profits. What is, not, not what's permissible, but what's profitable. A lot of Christians today are asking the question, what am I allowed to do? And that's the wrong question. It's not a bad question, but it's not the best question. The best question is, what's profitable? What's the best thing for me to do here? Because there are things you could argue about whether we're allowed to do this or whether we're allowed to do that. I could sit at home, I've used this example before, but I could sit at home and flick my wife's ear and see how long it'd take me before she got mad at me. But that's not love. Maybe, she, maybe I could do it two times and she wouldn't get too angry. But what's permissible may not be profitable. <laughs> that probably won't help our relationship any. So there's a question that I think a lot of teenagers ask who are trying to discover their faith, trying to understand um, and and the, the delicate part is when they're kids, you tell them what to do, right? You should. Now, our culture says you, don't need, to tell, you need them to tell you what they feel like doing. But good parenting is teaching your child things they don't yet know. It's training them up, right? However, they get to this teenage place, and you're also training them to be led by the Spirit. And you're training them to be to listen to the voice of God and to be led by their conscience. And, and you're training them to make good decisions when you're not around, even when you're not telling them what to do. And so when I was a teenager, the questions we were asking were, you know, this is what you'd ask your youth leader. Is it okay to do this? Well, what about this? This seems okay. This guy does it. This church says it's okay. Can we do this? And the problem with that is there's very little life in that because what you'll do is... Wherever the youth leader or the pastor or the book you read, wherever they draw the line, 
If you're asking those questions, you'll come right up to the line and tow it. And you'll just see how close you can get to that line. And if you live that way, pretty soon you'll find yourself on the other side of that line. That's not the way I want to live. And a runner doesn't, live, doesn't run that way. He doesn't, he doesn't run the whole time seeing, seeing how close he can dance to the, to the lines and make that his mission. No, his mission is, how can I get to that finish line? Now, it's important that I'm not disqualified, but my goal is not just to run a race without being disqualified. My goal is to win. Now, with that as a backdrop, let's start reading in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul has just said, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I discipline my body or literally, the King James says, buff it. Like I, I hit myself over and over again. I put it through the work and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. In verse 1 of chapter 10, he says, For I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, maybe we lost you right there. Wait, they were baptized into Moses. What does that mean? He's drawing parallels to our New Testament life. You see, they came out of Egypt. They came out of slavery, out of bondage. And that going through the sea was symbolic of what we've done. Where we came out of the world, we came out of our bondage to sin, bondage to the enemy, and we were, through, through confessing Jesus, through uh, confessing his Lord, receiving him as our Savior, and then even through the waters of baptism, just as they walked through the, the, the sea, and they, they walked as though on dry land, so we were baptized into Christ. That was both symbolic, and, and for, for most of you in the room here, you actually went through a, a physical demonstration of that. He said, we were all baptized through the cloud and and through the sea. They were all baptized. They all ate the same spiritual food. Now understand that. What does he mean by spiritual food? Does that mean they were just like eating invisible food the whole time? Mm, This is hungry like, you know, Peter Pan and the Lost Boys. Like, just kind of pretend that you're eating something. No, the spiritual food, of course, there's two sides to that. They, They were fed spiritually by the word of God. Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, right? There was spiritual food there, but also the manna they received from heaven. I mean, food rained out of the sky that they'd never seen before. The word manna means, what is it? Like, what's this? That's how foreign it was to them. And so in that sense, that food was spiritual. It was real. They could taste it. They could eat it, but it was heavenly. They didn't know where it came from. So they all went through the same Red Sea. They all followed and, and, and were in that same cloud of the presence of God. And it says they all drank from the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. So you guys remember last year when we talked about this. And, and they got to the point where they said, we don't have any water. Where is it going to come from? And Moses grabbed his staff and God told him uh, if he was to, to, that, I mean, he was going to strike the rock and water was going to come out of the rock. Now, another time God told him to speak to the rock and he got frustrated and hit the rock. But the first time he was told that to hit it, hit it with your staff and water came out. So their water came out of the rock. That was certainly a spiritual experience. But then Paul goes further and says the whole time, just like water came out of the rock, like you guys know that you just can't walk up to a wall downtown, smack it with a stick and water starts coming out, right? You, you know you can't just walk, down, you know, walk over to the Rocky Mountains and just go up to a random crag, a random cliff, hit it, and water comes out, especially not in the wilderness where the Israelites were, where there was no water. This wasn't a waterfall. This wasn't just a spring they didn't know about. This was a divine gift of God's provision. But what what Paul says here is that wasn't just a one-time thing. In fact, God kept providing food for them all through their journey. So watch what they had all through their journey. All through their journey, God's presence went with them. All through the journey, God's provision of food was for them. All through the journey, God watered and refreshed them. And that rock, he says, that they drank from, that rock was Christ. Though they didn't know it, Christ himself traveled with them. 
They were taken care of. They were, they were um, provided for. They were saturated in the presence of God. Now, by all accounts, they got all the privileges here. They got the presence of God. They have the deliverance of God. They have the provision of God. They have the refreshment of God. All this should be enough. But it wasn't. For some, in fact, for most, they turn to other things. Now, if you think of the promised land as the finish line, Egypt as the starting line, the promised land as the finish line, out of the, say, million or more that went, how many reached the finish line? Two guys. It's a pretty poor ratio, isn't it? Thank God their kids went in. But it's still sad. These guys had every opportunity, every advantage. Now, Paul is telling them, and he's painting a picture here. He's not telling them, you know, most of you are just going to go to hell. No, I mean, this isn't about heaven or hell. This is about whether or not you're running a race and whether or not you're winning the race. Whether or not your life is accomplishing what God gave you to accomplish. And so he tells them, he's painting a picture for them, that there's a race in front of us. You all have drank from the same spiritual drink. You've eaten from the same spiritual food. You've gone through the waters of baptism. Every single one of us has the same advantage in Christ. Now, you look around and say, well, you, you came from a good family. Or, or, or you know, you, you, you were part of a church life for a long time. I just got saved. Or you don't know what happened to me in my past. Well, the truth is, Paul said, Everything that happened before I found Jesus, I, I count as a loss. It's nothing. And I understand we, we have physical family and, and, and environmental advantages and disadvantages. I consider myself blessed to be born in Canada. I consider myself blessed to have a good family that I was born into. But ultimately, we all have the advantage of being brought into the family of God. Of being born again into Christ of being anointed with his Holy Spirit. So every single one of us has the advantage, has the position to step up and live the life that God calls you to. There is nothing in your past which prohibits you from going where God's called you to go, from doing what God's called you to do, and from resisting the temptation that the enemy sends your way. Now you can buy the lie and say, but I'm different. But I'll tell you this, we're all different based on what Jesus did. That's your identity. And Paul said they all had the same advantage, but most of them did not take advantage of that advantage. He says here, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. In other words, rather than getting to the promised land as God had designed for them, they died before they got there. And they could say, well, whose fault is that? And they look back and it was nobody's fault but their own because God had given them every opportunity to step into his fullness. He provided for them when they needed it. He delivered them when they needed it. His presence surrounded them. His, his refreshment followed them. He gave them godly leaders. He gave them victory in battle. They had everything they needed and yet when it came time to go in, they didn't. And he says, here's why. He says in verse 6, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they craved. Now let me ask you a question. Why do you figure they were craving evil things? Well, let's, go, let's read through it and then we'll answer that question. Let's be fair. Let's read through it and then we'll ask that question again. He says, don't be idolaters. In other words, idol worshipers, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they stood up to play. That quote is a quote from the Old Testament, from the story of when Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God. And God gave him what we know now as the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, the law, he gave them this instruction, inscribed it on tablets. But while Moses was gone and Moses was experiencing the presence of God, the people panicked. They panicked because they didn't know where God was and they didn't know where their leader was. So when they panicked, they turned back to the things they knew. What they knew were the gods of Egypt. Do you know what advantage the gods of Egypt had over the true God of Israel? See, the gods of Egypt are not gods at all. You know that, right? There's one God. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Yahweh your God is one. This is the great Shema. We have one God. Every other God is an idol, is false. But they turn to these false gods, these false idols, and here's why. Because we can see it, we can touch it. We know it. It's right here. I mean, it's silly to think that something that used to be jewelry around your neck and your finger, you molded into a cow and you said, wow, we made a God. That sounds crazy to us. Sounds crazy until you realize that while somebody might not bow down to their new car, bow down to their bank account, we still make gods out of things we created. Because we think this will save me. My investments will save me. My job will save me. The government will save me. This will save me. This will help me. This is what makes me who I am. So we understand this. Because it's a lot easier to trust something you can see and go on the internet and check. You can look at than a God you can't necessarily always see and touch. You know his presence, but you, you can't see him all the time. You have to believe. There's faith involved. So this verse where it says the people sat down to eat and drink was when they ate and drank and celebrated their idolatry. They got up to play. They got up to dance and, and once again enter in to this idol worshiping. So don't be idolaters, he says. Not for the Corinthians. That maybe was a little bit more obvious, right? There's little statues or temples to false gods. Don't do that. Here, it's a little bit more uh, subtle, right? I mean, you probably don't go to work with somebody that goes home and bows down to an idol. You might, but you probably don't. Probably that's not a big temptation for you. I doubt that many of you were walking, <laughs> walking by a gift shop and just said, hmm, that would make a good idol. I, I'm going to just not go to church this Sunday. Instead, I'm going to put that in my house and I'm going to offer sacrifices to it. There's probably never a temptation in your life. But there is a temptation to put other things before God or to put your trust in something else. Somebody once said, and I think it was, it's a wise thing, they said an idol is something that you give your strength to above God or you expect to, you, you, you gain strength from it above God, that you look to it for strength. An idol is worship misdirected. And worship is all about your priorities. When our priority is God, when our hope is God, when our trust is God, when our source of strength, of life, of joy, of peace, of all these things is God, idolatry is not a problem. Well, they turned to idols. Remember what he said? Followed them everywhere? The cloud of God's presence. See, if they had trusted in the presence of God, they'd have no need for an idol. Same thing happened. When it says in the next verse, in verse 8, nor let us act immorally, this word for immorally is specifically talking about sexual immorality. As some of the did, and 23,000 fell in one day. That was referring to the time where Balaam, who could not prophesy a curse against them, instead convinced one of their enemies, a, a nation that was threatened by Israel, to send in young women to seduce the people of Israel. Seduce them into committing adultery, seduce them into getting into bed with them, but then also seducing them that once they did that, worship our idols together. 23,000 died in a day. In fact, 24,000 died altogether. One day, 23,000 died. That's a shame, isn't it? Now, I think in the New Covenant, thank God, we believe that the blood of Jesus <laughs> is so beautiful it cleanses us of this unrighteousness. We believe the mercy of God is, is manifest in Jesus Christ. Mercy and truth are made real in Him. And so, we don't see 23,000 people dying in a day, but the traps are still there. And they're still there to keep you from your goal. They're still there to keep you from all that God's got for you. They're still there to throw you off your track and, and throw you out of the race. He says, let us not do that. Let us not act immorally. Now listen, you guys know what that means right here 2017. God has set a standard. And he says, this is the standard. The reason... That God sets standards for us as far as everything, as far as the way we live, as far as our sexuality, as far as our money, as far as all of these things, 
The reason he does it is because he's the creator and he knows how we work. He created us. He knows what's best. Do we just believe God knows what's best? That sounds funny to some people, but guys, he has the owner's manual. He designs you. Our culture is experimenting every year with something new. We don't know how it'll turn out, but we've turned away from our creator and we say, we are our own creators here. We can do what we want. And guys, that's not a good path. Because what you're saying is you're rejecting the voice of the creator and saying, I know best. God does not create these laws just simply to, 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 for some reason, just to see if you're going to do it. Every single thing he did was out of love for humanity. And every single thing, we would be blessed if we would follow it. He says, let's not act immorally. Some of them did. 23,000 fell in one day in verse 9. Nor let us try the Lord or test the Lord as some of them did. And they were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Listen, every single one of these things, the reason they fell into these traps, and that's what they were, they were traps. The reason they fell into these traps, every single one of these times they had an option, whether I trust God or I look somewhere else. And every time they looked somewhere else, they fell into that trap again. And we have the same options in front of us. Now look, I mean, look, it had uh, this grumbling what were they grumbling about? We don't have any meat. We don't, where is food going to come from? We're tired of this stuff. They grumbled because instead of trusting that God was going to provide, they started worrying about how are we going to get food? What's it going to be like? They grumbled about, well, you're, not, you're just, once again, you took us here to die. Every single one of these things that he names, the answer to all of these things would be to trust God. You're worried that you don't see God? Hey, the cloud's been with you this whole time. You, you, you're worried. I mean, you're, you're tempted to fall into immorality. Don't you know that he delivered you from the paganism and the bondage of the Egyptians? Don't you know that his presence is enough? Don't you know that his way is higher? When they grumbled about their food, he said, I made food rain down from heaven. I made water come out of a rock. Why are you guys worried? It's like the disciples who are worrying about what are we going to eat in the boat? We forgot to bring bread. Right after they were leaving, the boat was sailing away from a miracle where Jesus had fed thousands with a little bit of bread. And they get in the boat and go, oh, shoot, we don't have any bread. And Jesus says, don't you remember what just happened? And we laugh, silly disciples, silly Israelites. Oh, well, they never learn. But we do the same thing. We see miracles. We see God's provision. We have his word, which reminds us of his faithfulness. We have testimony after testimony in our own lives talking about his faithfulness. But in a time of testing, in a time where our faith is being proven, we have the choice. Do I trust God or do I try to make this happen on my own? In verse 11, <coughs> excuse me, says, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. In fact, the original Greek, some have translated to say, to say the revenue or the sum of all the ages. In fact, we're, we're the beneficiaries of all that's happened before. We're, we're the receivers of the revenue of the ages. All that's happened up to this point, we get to benefit from that. We're at this point in history where everything that's happened before has led up to this point. We're part of one long story. We're part of one long race. And you can choose to learn from it and receive from it, or you can be so smart that you try to do it yourself. He says we should learn from these people. We should be instructed by it. He says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you'll be able to endure it. Therefore, beloved, flee from idolatry. Now listen, what he's saying here, remember, he started out telling us, here's how you win, here's how you run the race. 
And now the question you're faced with, question you're faced with, are you going to fall for the traps or are you going to trust in God? Because he says here, guys, I know you're being tempted. He's writing to the Corinthians, some who were Jews, some who were straight up pagans. And the question is, do I go back to my old ways? Now, some of these had family members who still worshiped idols. And they're asking the question, is it okay for me to do this? What about this? Can I eat this? Can I do this? They're walking dangerously close to that line. and Maybe they're being tempted. I know that many people in the early church were persecuted because they chose to follow God. They chose to follow the one true God and they chose to believe in Jesus. The Jews were persecuted because they believed Jesus was the Messiah. The pagans were persecuted because they refused to worship their, other, their false gods that the rest of their culture worshiped. Now, if that doesn't sound a little familiar to you, you're not paying attention. Our culture now wants us to bow down to certain things so that we fit in a bit better. They were faced with the same thing, the same temptations. They were part of a culture that was not catering to their belief system. We look back fondly. You remember back in the day where TV was cleaner, where everybody went to church whether or not they whether or not they went any other day, they at least went for Christmas and Easter. You know, we, we look back fondly on those days, but let me tell you, the days we live in right now are not too different from the Bible times. And they did just fine. I want my culture to be redeemed. I want people to get saved. I want revival here. I'm not worried, though, about, about the fact that these people are acting like they're in darkness and these people are acting in darkness. That gives me more fuel and encouragement to go reach them. But I'm not worried that they're going to destroy my faith. Because I know this, my faith's not in them. I don't need the culture to affirm my faith. My faith is in Jesus. You've got to make the choice who you're following. What kind of race are you running? And here's the good news. See, we could take all this tonight and turn it into just a story about moralism. Will you live a moral life? Will you try a little bit harder? I have some good news for you here. It is not by your strength or your power that any of this happens. It is the power of Jesus Christ in you. Amen. You've been baptized into him. You have been, you have been uh, born into a new nature through Christ Jesus. And so he says this. He says, don't you worry because no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. You might think you're in a situation, you're the first person to come across this situation. How in the world am I going to survive this? But he says, don't you worry. We all face this. And then he says this, God is faithful. Here's what a lot of us ask ourselves. When we're tempted, when we're tested, when we're tried, we ask ourselves, am I up to this challenge? Am I up for this? Is my faith strong enough? Is my, uh, oh boy, am I ready for this? But that's not the question that's asked here. He says, God is faithful. Doesn't talk about your faithfulness. He talks about God's faithfulness. If you'll trust in God's faithfulness, there's not one thing you'll be tempted with. There's not one thing you come across that he is not able to deliver you from. Not only able, but more than willing. Now here's what he says. He says this, he would not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Now, a lot of people take this and they assume that God's the one that's tempting you. But the scripture says, don't let anyone ever say, says this in James, don't let anyone say God tempted me because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor will he tempt by evil. So if you think, well, God's tempting me, God's trying, no, God's not doing it. But God wouldn't even put you in a situation, God would not allow you to come into a situation where you couldn't resist that temptation. And I know in the moment, it feels like you can't. What do you focus on in that moment? When you don't know how you're going to overcome, when you don't know how you're going to get out of this, when you don't know what you're going to do, you, look, you don't look inward. You don't say, well, am I up for this? You don't look. You look to God. And you look to his faithfulness. He's faithful. He can get me out of this. Because he, he I would not be in a situation I wasn't able to overcome. That's the, the fight's rigged, guys. Your manager never puts you in the ring with a guy you can't beat. And that's good news. It's a rigged system. You've never been in a battle you can't win. 
Nice. Nice. I never get in the ring, in the spiritual ring, that is. I never get in the boxing ring of, of life and, and come up against somebody that, that God says, you can't whoop that guy. Every single time, you can win. You can stand. You can resist. And then it says this, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape also so that you'll be able to endure it. I want you to look for that. I want you to look for that. Now listen, the temptation for them, remember, the temptation for them at one point was to turn to idolatry. What was their way of escape? Had they looked to God, they would have found peace and strength in his presence rather than the temporary security that they felt by a golden calf they could touch. Had they looked to God rather than grumbling about food, he provided for them. He would have made sure they had more than enough. Had they looked to God when they were tempted by turning and, and giving their bodies and, 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 and all of this to, to another nation and to idolatry, had they looked to God, he would have satisfied every need they had. But they didn't. God always, I love this, he uses, with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape. Are you looking for that? Because that's what you should be looking for. Next time you're in a situation where you don't know, you're, you're tempted, you're feeling like you're pushed to the edge of yourself, you don't know what you're going to do, look at these things. Number one, look to God's faithfulness. God is faithful. He's not, he wouldn't, he wouldn't even, I wouldn't even be here if I couldn't win. And the second thing you look for is you say, God, where is the way of escape here? Where is your way of escape? You're my deliverer. You're my rescuer. You're my salvation. If I come up to the sea and I got an army behind me and a sea in front of me, God, are you opening up the sea so that I can walk through it? Then he says this. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I want to read you one more thing in Romans 13. Now listen, here's why he's saying all of this. Because you have been designed to run a race that God's created for you. You've been designed to live a life that's so beyond what you've ever imagined. You've been designed for his glory. You're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared for you beforehand. I love that verse because it tells me that God created me for the work in front of me and he created the work in front of me for me. We are a custom fit. That's awesome. And you know this, I've been created for his glory. So why would I fall into the traps that the enemy's placed around? And I think an important phrase that I want to stick with you tonight is make no provision for the flesh. Don't make any provision for your flesh. The Israelites gave in to their flesh rather than being led by the Spirit. You want to run this race? You want to run it to win? You want to live a life in Christ that's victorious? Don't let your flesh have its way. What is the flesh? That's that, that's that part of you, that animal nature. That's that part of you that just says, this feels good, so I want to do it. I want to do this because this feels right. It feels good to worry right now. It feels good to hit this guy right now. It feels good to look at this. It feels good to do this. It feels good to eat this. All of this, and you're being led by what you feel instead of being led by your spirit, which is filled with the Holy Spirit and being led by God. Now, here's what he says in Romans 13, and this is where we'll wrap it up tonight. He says this, he goes through some instructions. The whole chapter, Romans 13, is instructions to believers. Just telling them what to do. Do this, this is right. Some people think it's not a, it's not a New Testament thing to tell people what to do. It is a New Testament thing because it's all through the New Testament. You're just not, you're not under the law, you're under grace. But the Bible tells us that grace teaches us. Grace teaches us to deny ungodliness, it says in the book of Titus. Did you know that? The grace of God actually teaches you how to live. If you're not willing to accept instruction, you are resisting the grace of God. So here's what he says. Not under the law, but under grace. Here's what he says. We are under the law of Christ, the law of love, the law of liberty. And here's how you live. He tells you, stay away from this, do this, don't do this. But then he says this, ultimately in verse 10, this is Romans 13, 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. If you walk in love, you won't murder somebody. If you walk in love, you won't steal. Now, that sounds obvious. 
But if you walk in love, you will fulfill the law. Then he says this, do this, do what? Love. Do this knowing the time. The time we live in, guys. And if it was feeling like the last days when Paul wrote this, don't you think it's a little bit even more now? Do this, love, knowing the time. That it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. What's he telling you to lay aside? The deeds of darkness. What are deeds? That's what you do. It's what you're doing with your life. What are you doing? Lay aside the deeds of darkness, the stuff you used to do before you got saved, the stuff your friends are doing, the stuff your family, your coworkers. Don't do that anymore when it's darkness. Now, come on, guys. If they're eating a sandwich, you can do that. That's not dark. You know, that's fine. But there's stuff you know very well that's not part of your life anymore. It says, let's lay aside that, those deeds of darkness. Why is it called a deed of darkness? Because we did it because we didn't know better. We couldn't see what we see now. Our eyes have been open. The light is on. And when the light's on, you, you, do, you, you act differently, don't you? You ever tried to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night? I don't know how many of you are married to a wife like I have. I have a really good wife who's a very good decorator. The only problem with that is things get changed often. So I try to be a good husband. If I have to use the restroom in the middle of the night, I don't want to turn on the light. And I try to be quiet. And I'm usually the furthest thing from quiet because I trip over something. I hit something because I can't see what she just shifted. She's got a mannequin that she cruelly moves around the house. <laughs> so if I get a glimpse of that, I go, ah! Because I think... <laughs> but I don't do that when the lights are on. You, you walk different when the white lights are on. You, you walk with purpose and direction, right? When the lights are on, you're not walking into the wall. You're not tripping over chairs. You're, you know where you're going. Now, everybody else is walking around with the lights off. And they're still tripping over things. They're still stumbling. Now, you could try to fit in and stumble with them. Like Jesus talked about the blind leading the blind. Or you can say, I don't live that way anymore because something's changed in me. That's not judging them. That's saying something's changed. I see something I didn't see before. So now I know better, I'm going to do better. I'm going to live by the light I have. I'm going to live by the light of Christ. He says this, let's lay aside the deeds of darkness. Let's put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day. Not in carousing and drunkenness. Not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Not in strife and jealousy. I'd say most of the stuff that the Israelites fell into would fall into these categories. And they're all the same root, which is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's the same stuff that Adam and Eve dealt with, right, with the first sin in the garden. Boy, that fruit looks good to my eyes. Boy, it would taste good to my flesh. And it would make me wise, which is pride. Same old stuff. It's the same stuff Jesus was tempted with in the wilderness. And we've overcome. He says this, don't, don't do that stuff. Stay away from the carousing, the drunkenness, the sexual promiscuity, the sensuality, not in strife and in jealousy. But here's your answer. Here's what you do. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, the message tonight is not stay away from sin. It is stay away from that stuff. But overall, here's your answer. Put on Christ. See, if you're trying to live a life where you're just trying not to mess up, you'll mess up. But if you're living a life to please him, you're living a life full of Christ, full of the spirit, you won't want to mess around with that stuff. Because that's not the life you live anymore. That's not who I am. So what does he say? Here's your answer. Here's how you stay away. Here's how you know how to live. Put on Christ. Here's how you resist temptation. Put on Christ. Here's how you walk as he would walk. Put on Christ. And make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. I just want to make a, a quick couple points about that. Make no provision for the flesh. It means I don't give an inch to those areas that I'm tempted in. I don't give an inch to it. Make no provision. 
You know, if I give myself the right to be angry in my marriage, I will be angry. If I give myself the right not to forgive you, I won't forgive you. Whatever you give yourself the right to do, you'll eventually take advantage of that right. But if you say, that's not an option for me. That's not an option for me to hold bitterness in my heart towards this person. It's not an option for me to react. In anger. It's not an option for me to look at that stuff. I'm not watching that show. That's not even an option for me. Well, brother, don't you think you're being a little strict with that? No. I'm not going to make any provision of the flesh in regards to its lust. What is lust? The Bible says lust leads to sin. So is lust sin? Here's the question. I think you could answer yes and no, you'd both be right. Because Jesus talked about entertaining something in your heart, and it's just the same as doing it. But I think in reality, lust is that step right before sin, where you start thinking maybe it'd be okay. I'd never do it, but wouldn't it be kind of fun? Oh, I'd never do it, but boy, would that feel good to just tell that person what I really think. I'd never do it, though. I'd never do it. What are you doing? You're lusting after that thing. You might say, I'll never do it, but you want to do it. Guys, simple pattern. But the more you let that lust in your life, you'll eventually do what it is you say you won't do. Because at some point, you've said it's okay. Have you ever looked at the bleach in your cupboard and said, I wouldn't drink it, but boy, I wish I could. Anybody ever thought that? Good, good. You should not think that. Why? What if they made it cherry flavored? <laughs> would, you, would you be like, oh, I, I wouldn't do it, but oh, I'd love to. No, why? Because you know it's poison. The things that the enemy puts in front of us, they're poison. Sin is poison to your life. It's going to kill you. It kills the good stuff. It's, it's bad, right? We know that. It's not just bad because God said it was bad. God said it was bad because it was bad. Does that make sense? So, I don't lust after something that's poisonous to me. But when I start lusting after it, what I've said in my mind is, it's probably not as poisonous as I think it is. It's probably not as bad as I think it is. Yeah, maybe it would be kind of nice. At that point, the only thing that's holding you back is fear of maybe what your church friends would say or maybe you think you're going to get in trouble with God, but, but you've already given your heart over to it. So he says, don't make any provision. So, I mean, like, let's just be straight with you. Just be honest. Can we just be straight? There are times where you don't stop at the line. You stop 10 feet from the line, and maybe that's not where my brother's going to stop. Maybe my brother will stop five feet, and we're both on this side of the line. Praise the Lord. But for me, this is as close as I'm getting to that. Because I know me, and I know the life that God called me to. I'm not even getting close to that. You know, it's interesting that, that, that the Bible tells us to resist the devil, and he'll flee from you, right? Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Praise God. But actually, it says submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And that word flee is like run away in terror. Like, that's great. You're making the devil run. You know that same word flee? The exact same word. F-L-E-E. And the same Greek word, which is telling you to run away, saying the devil's going to run away from you. He uses the same word when he says flee youthful lusts. Well, I'm not supposed to run. devil's supposed to run. There are times where you just need to get out of the room. Like Joseph did, just leave the room. <laughs> Don't stay there too long. Just get out of there. And that's godly. Because what you're saying is my life's not my own. Praise God. I, I know you guys are called to, to victory in Christ. I know you're called to overcome. I know you're called to win the race that God called you to. This is good. I want you to know that there is not one Christian in the room tonight who has confessed Jesus as Lord, who has received of his spirit. There's not one person in the room tonight who doesn't have every single tool you need to overcome the evil one. You got it right now. You've got it right now. You don't have to go through a course to get it. You don't have to, to get a degree to get it. You don't have to get 15 books to get it. You've got it right now. You've got the spirit of God. You've got the word of God. You've got the life of God. You've got the anointing of the Holy One dwelling within you. You can overcome through Jesus Christ. It's your decision. It's your decision. Jesus did it all. He's already paid the price. He's already made the way. He has already accomplished the victory. Your decision whether you're going to walk in that victory or not. Every single Israelite that walked with Moses had the right to go into the promised land. Every single one of them did. But only two took advantage of that. 
Only two said we're going in. Well, thank God, I think the ratio is better now. <laughs> and we have an advantage they didn't have. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. We have the new nature in Christ. Our old self has been crucified with Christ, but you guys know just as well as I do, you are the ones that have to consider that guy dead. Well, he just keeps coming back and saying, remember that time? Remember what we used to do? And you say, no, you're dead. I don't, I don't deal with that stuff anymore. That was, that was dead Jonathan. Dead Jonathan is part of my past. It doesn't even exist. I'm a new person in Christ. <laughs> Thank God. I think of some of the folks here in this church and they go back home and people are amazed at the difference in your life. What's the first question? First question is, you want to go out and do what we used to do? No, I don't do that anymore. And they're either mad at you or they're baffled by you, but there are, something happens. And you have a choice in that moment to be a testimony to them or a stumbling block to them. Thank God that we have Jesus and we can put on Christ and we don't have to make any provision and that every single time we're tempted, he has provided a way of escape. So all that stuff we learned about the Israelites was about learning to walk by faith, was about learning to trust God, was about learning to let go of fear, let go of slavery, let go of the mentality of slavery. And also, according to Paul here, it was also about learning to not give in to the flesh and instead be led by the Spirit of God. Look to God for what you need. Because every sin really comes from looking to something else to fulfill a need that God wants to meet. Every single one of them. Every single time we fall into sin, it's us looking to the flesh or looking to somebody else or looking to other things to fill a need that only God can fill. I want you to trust God. Trust God today. And run your race and run it with speed and run it with, with joy and run it with faith because God is with you. Amen? Amen? Stand up with me tonight. Let's pray.